Hey there, this is Emily. And this is Rosa. Welcome to the Unchecked Podcast. We are two women from two different countries who will talk about living life in their late 20s. Right now, I am angry. I'm appalled by the obvious hate-fueled anti-Asian mass murder that has been committed by a white supremacist, only for authorities to downplay it as a really bad day from a man with a sexual addiction. Let's be clear, he is a domestic terrorist who completely knew why and who he was targeting. And let's also be clear, the names we call him, whether it be Lone Wolf, or a troubled man, or confirmed suspect, would never even be considered if he was a black or brown man. He would have been called a terrorist or a criminal, and he would have been dead. Rest in peace, Delana Ashley Yuan, Paul Andre Michaels, Xiao Jie Tan, Dao Yu Feng, Sun Si Park, Heung J. Grant, Sun Cha Kim, and Yuang A. Yu. All hopes that you will be able to recover, Alicia Hernandez Ortiz. I am frustrated by the 150% jump in hate incidents against the Asian community, a total of 3,700 incidents and counting, in the form of verbal and online harassment, physical assault, and civil rights violations which has been fueled by the racist narrative of our so-called ex-president Donald fucking Trump, who has repeatedly called COVID-19 a China virus or Kung flu, and put blame on an outside country for the U.S.'s lack of control in containing the virus on its homeland. You know how many cases we have this moment? 29.6 million. How many deaths? 538,000. Unfortunately, by now, we've been desensitized by these numbers. I'm enraged by our country, our institutions, and its media, rooted, grown, and thriving from white supremacy, devaluing and silencing AAPI communities throughout our history, using us as a toy to represent the so-called model minority in an attempt to pit us against other BIPOC communities under a scarcity mentality. And so far, it's been working. I'm disgusted by our history and our media's fetishization and objectification of Asian women, which has made us become lesser than and toys of men's sexual fantasies that I, like other women, have to double check the streets at night, have to ignore catcalling in fear that it might turn into something deadly, have to text friends and family to let them know where I am at all times. I'm indignant that those years of racist history, of name-calling, of dehumanization has led to unsolicited attacks in our community. You see mom-and-pop restaurants already on the brink of closing due to COVID now being vandalized with racist language. Children who go to school only to be taunted, bullied, and beat down by their peers. And most heartbreaking of all, our elderly, our grandfathers and our grandmothers, who gave up their lives in our home country just to make sure that our parents and I 
would have a better way of living. Being attacked in broad daylight. Unaware and unwarranted. When all they wanted to do was just take a walk down their street. Most of all, I am angry at myself for being so acutely aware of what I represent and how I act with my parents, who mainly speak Cantonese in public. For being embarrassed of having our language spoken so loudly on the streets, in a shop, in a restaurant, silencing them out of shame. For thinking that doing that will guarantee that we can stay invisible, fit in, not stand out. That, of course, we are American. And that, of course, we are able and can speak perfect English. Our parents and grandparents before us might have stayed silent because they had their own issues to deal with. They had to live. They had to figure out how to survive in a society that would give them backhanded compliments, xenophobic comments to go back to their home country, or lost job opportunities because of the color of their skin. And to be honest, I'm scared. I'm scared for myself, for my parents, for my relatives, for my friends. Scared when I see these attacks happening on the daily. Terrified that a white man can mass murder eight people. Only for us to hear that it was just because he was just having a fucking bad day. But while I know it's important for us to take care of ourselves and our mental well-being during this time, we have to make our voices heard. Today, we are going to fucking fight to make sure that we, as a community, are recognized and respected in this land. So in today's episode, I'll be talking about several things within reason. Number one, the history of Asians in America, including the racist policies that have humiliated and dehumanized the Asian diaspora. I'll also briefly talk about the fetishization of Asian females in the media. Why? This background is important for us to understand how everything that's happening to us right now is not new at all. It's just repurposed views of a thin layer of niceity masked as hatred from America, which has fully unveiled itself into these ugly forms that we see today. Two, Contention with black and brown communities bolstered by the model minority myth. This is really critical in understanding why policing, the most common topic that's being talked about in our communities as a way to control these hate crimes, is not the solution for Americans' racist history and recent events. And three, API activism throughout the years. It's important to understand how we fought and have continued to fight these institutionally racist policies. And while Rosa has noted that while this is not the space for her to dominate the conversation, she will also provide her piece on how she feels, what is going on, and how the BIPOC community can support. I know right now there are so many things to unpack. And of course, this conversation cannot and will not fit into one podcast episode. But I really hope that you as listeners can come up with education and an understanding of the dynamics you see today in 2021. To help you unpack, I'm going to also include time checkers in our podcast notes for the specific sections and stories in each of our conversations. Finally, I think while it's important to educate, it's equally as important to take action 
or else you'll be stuck in a cycle of think, not do. We're going to end with a few resources you can look into, who you can follow, and how you can contribute. Before I start talking about the history of Asian Americans in the U.S., just note that this section will have trigger warnings of violence and rape. If you do not feel comfortable hearing about all of this, please skip to the other markers I've noted in our podcast notes. So the reason I've said that these incidents are not new news is that we, as Asians, have been marked as forever foreigners the moment our ancestors stepped into the land that is the United States in the 1800s. What you'll hear from these examples, these legislative policies, these stories, is that we have constantly been used as political scapegoats time and time again from the U.S. government. Years of discrimination that have been proclaimed by media and the government and sold into the ears of Americans effectively created the yellow peril of yesterday and the kung flu virus of today. You'll also hear about how and why racial and sexual stereotypes of Asian women in the past have also transformed us into objects that are lesser than, becoming the sexual fantasies of men and ultimately leading to sexual violence and what we saw in Atlanta. As I talk about what's happened in our history, I want you to note how many times America has dehumanized us time and time again. Eventually, you'll find that you've lost count. So let's first start with the policies. Discrimination began the moment we landed on American soil. It begins with the Page Act of 1875 and the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. One of the first U.S. laws to prevent immigration and naturalization on the basis of race. The intention was to bar Chinese-American laborers from entering the country for fear of taking away American jobs. You had 40,000 Chinese-American come into America in 1882. Only 10 immigrated in 1887. This had a long-term effect restricting immigration for many years and leaving a slew of other racist policies that affected and trickled down to the rest of the Asian diaspora, including the Japanese, Korean, Filipino, and South Asian Indian laborers, among others, who arrived on the West Coast and replaced the Chinese as a form of cheap labor after the passage of this act. Ultimately, Xenophobia was created as a result of a fight for cheap labor in the U.S. The growing power of East Asian countries and the immigration of its people and its Eastern values were a threat to Western society. So what you don't often hear in the history textbooks are the minuscule acts happening on a state level within the late 80s and the early 90s that slowly made us become the forever other, the ones with the yellow skin, with diseases, with abhorrent values antithetical to the white way of life. In California, they implemented a $2.50 a month tax on anyone who was Chinese and applied for licenses to work in the state's mines. At that time, people relied on wages of $3 to $4 a month. Anti-Chinese riots happened across LA and Wyoming, leading to massacres of between 40 to 70 Chinese people as well as robberies, 
bullying, and other forms of racial attacks. Anti-South Asian riots occurred in Bellingham, Washington, where they rounded 200-plus South Asian immigrant workers in the basement of a city hall and effectively drove them away from the city. In San Fran, the Board of Ed established a policy of segregating Asians in 1905 and created the term oriental schools to physically house us into separate institutions. And while these acts were happening, American media added fuel to the fire. We were the yellow peril. We were the coolies. The influx of Asians not only threatened the Western way of life, but during those times, East Asia was seen as a political and military threat to Europe and North America. Westerners wanted to paint us as dangerous outsiders that were perpetually inferior to the Western way of life. They hated how we dressed. They didn't understand our mother tongue. And because of this, we became virus scapegoats, blamed for viruses just as uh, smallpox and the bubonic plague sound familiar, and portrayed as rats living in dirty and unsanitary conditions within Chinatown. We were disgusting, we were filthy, we were uncivilized. We were prostitutes, we were gamblers, we were opium addicts. This hatred made them burn down Honolulu's Chinatown and quarantine residents of San Fran's Chinatown. It took 61 fucking years until the Chinese Exclusion Act was repealed in 1943. And another 22 years, the Immigration Act of 1965 when race-specific barriers were removed. If you thought that the repeal of the Chinese Exclusion Act 1943 marked a new era of Asian acceptance in the country, boy, were you completely wrong. Fun fact, the repeal was advocated by white liberals not because they cared, because catering to China was America's way of showing its interracial superpower against Japan and the Axis powers during World War II. In the span of a few years, the Chinese were transformed from coolies to law-abiding, peace-loving citizens with high moral sense, which ultimately formed the backing of the model minority myth that we see today. And right before the repeal of the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1943, we had World War II and Pearl Harbor. In 1942, Roosevelt passed Executive Order 9066, one of the most disgusting violations of American civil rights. It gave the government the right to jail anyone who might look suspicious as enemies of the state, again, sound familiar, and move them into 10 internment camps set up in California, Washington, and Oregon. This uprooted the lives of 117,000 Japanese Americans, settling them in inhumane conditions within these makeshift campsites, uprooting their lives with a signature on a piece of paper. You see, this hatred rose and rose again in specific moments in the time after 1965, from the killing of Chinese-American Vincent Chin, who was clubbed to death by a baseball bat from two white men, and whose perpetrators were given unfair leniency, to Tong Hee Huynh, who was stabbed to death in a hate crime by two other white high school students in Davis, California, but whose perpetrators were only given six years in jail. 
You'll see this during 9-11, which led to incidents of Islamophobia towards Hindus, Muslims, and Sikhs, many of whom were South Asian, and documented scores of revenge-motivated crimes in the United States. And again, you'll see this even closer. 2002-2004, the SARS crisis led to a rise of anti-Asian hate starting in Canada and trickling down to parts of the U.S. To build into all this history is a layer of sexual stereotyping against Asian women, starting from World War II and slowly trickling its effects into mainstream media. These stereotypes had its roots in military sex tourism, where Asian women sexually served U.S. troops during World War II, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War. When Japan surrendered during World War II, the country set up a brothel system for American GIs. And these so-called comfort women locations were set up in Japan to serve American officers after the war. So even though the U.S. knew from reports that these women were being forced into prostitution, they did nothing to help. In a 2008 paper, White Sexual Imperialism, Sunny Wone wrote that white sexual imperialism through rape and war has created the hypersexualized stereotype of the Asian woman. This stereotype in turn fostered the overprevalence of Asian women in pornography, the male-ordered bride phenomenon, the Asian fetish syndrome, and worst of all, sexual violence against Asian women. The most common saying you might have heard from today, though I really hope that people do not even talk about this anymore in conversation, is from the movie Full Metal Jacket, which portrayed American soldiers during the Vietnam War and where a Vietnamese woman propositions herself to two American GIs in particular, saying, Me so horny, me love you long time. Over time, the phrase has entered various areas of pop culture, schoolyards, and the music and apparel industries, often without context, and often called out by people who knew intentionally that it was racist and sexist. It's been used to reduce Asian women to docile and exotic sex objects. Catherine Moon, a political science professor at Wesley College, states, I think the trafficking of women and sexual abuse of them should not be separated from the larger phenomenon of sexual violence against women and the harassment of women. It shouldn't matter what color their skin is or what language they speak. Whether it's mild harassment or rape or sex slavery, it's all part of a continuum. And the message we've sent is that women's lives do not matter as nearly as much as men's. Since March 2020, AAPI Hate has reported that 70% of these incidents have been reported by women. And above it all, Asian women, who are primarily in frontline service work in highly visible places in society, are being targeted for these atrocities. In Atlanta, the gunman rationalized his actions against massage workers as a means to avoid temptation. Listen to that sentence again. In Atlanta, the gunman rationalized his actions against massage workers as a means to avoid temptation. In doing so, he did what many who continue to harm do. He dehumanized, objectified, and blamed those women for their existence instead of taking responsibility for his actions. It's the victim's fault, not his.
hope listening to this made you angry, made you ready to take action. I've just provided all these policies, all these examples, because never once were we not used as a political tool in American society. The yellow peril stereotype began as U.S. realized the power of Asian countries. And with our current power struggles with China, with the trade war and the cyber war, we are yet again being thrown in the limelight as the disgusting bat-eating human viruses we are that brings COVID-19 to wherever we go. Trump needed another scapegoat to handle his failings on national land, and so we were the target. Did you know that the National Republic Senatorial Committee added a talking point in their 57-page memo to argue that calling COVID-19 the Chinese virus is not racist? I bet you didn't. It would be remiss not to talk about what's been happening today without mentioning our relationship with the Black community. For a deeper dive into the shared history between us, please refer to episode 5 on Black Lives Matter and allyship. However, what I want to highlight in this episode, and why policing is not the solution to our problems, is that Asians have been pitted against Black communities in a forever scarcity mentality driven by the white man. If you remember what I mentioned about the repeal of the Exclusion Act 1943, this began to turn around the view of Asians in America. With the repeal, American media turned us into the pillar of the model minority, right? Hardworking, law-abiding, well-educated, and successful citizens who've pursued and accomplished the American dream. Why, do you ask? Well, for fuck's sake, it was definitely not for our own benefit. The narrative was created and sold through the media in the 1960s as a result of racial tensions that increased in the United States. One, to undermine the Black power in the civil rights movement, and two, to appease China in the Trans-Pacific Alliance against Japan and the Axis powers during World War II. A two-for-one fucking deal. The model minority myth is dangerous in its assumption. It puts Asians in a monolith, creates the illusion that Asians don't experience struggle or racial discrimination, and disregards the heavy wealth disparities that skews towards East Asian groups. A 2018 study from the Pew Research Center found that Asian Americans experience the largest income inequality gap as an ethnic and racial group in the U.S. And a 2016 report from the New York City Mayor's Office of Operations, found that Asian immigrants have the highest poverty rates in the city, many among the elderly. No, we did not grow up in fucking mansions and grow money out of trees. Our parents fought tooth and nail to make a living in the United States to support us. But this myth also assumes that with any good minority, there would be a bad minority. So while Asian Americans were seen as a prime example of making it and achieving your goals as long as you work hard, It also became a white tool to call out Black failure. We were effectively being used in our nation's anti-Black rhetoric. This painted a picture favoring immigrants that were surviving. While stereotyping Blacks as not seceding, not because of the failure of our nation's policies, but because they were less intelligent, lazy, and all criminals. We were being used to diffuse the activism of the Black community at a time when they were calling for equal civil rights. In the words of writer Frank Chin in 1974, 
Whites love us because we are not black. They use us as an example of the good minority to combat the demands of civil rights and black power activists for a substantive change. So while both communities have been fed lies left and right from the American public, as well as the institutional and systemic racism that's been harboring our communities, as a result, we have the very tenuous relationship with the Black community. You see this in the Rodney King riots, the murder of Akai Gurley by Officer Peter Liang, Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard, which called for ending affirmative action, among others. Unfortunately, this type of thinking is still ingrained in our nation's mindset today. This mindset, this tension between Black and Asian communities was developed from the whisper of a white man. Fucked up, right? That is all to say that with anti-Asian hate crime on the rise, policing is not the solution that we need. I know that there has been debate across the spectrum, often between older and younger generations, whether increased policing would be the answer to our issues. We don't think policing is the answer. While people believe it will help safeguard our neighborhoods and prevent crime, this is only going to be a short-term solution. If you listen to episode 5 of our podcast, you know that policing itself is a systemic issue rooted itself in upholding white supremacy and anti-blackness. It's the white man's hand of enabling racist policies that turn communities of color against one another. Not only does more policing catalyze racial tensions between Asian and black folks and disproportionately affect black and brown people by funneling them into the prison industrial complex, it also does not address the root cause of violence happening in our community. People are still going to name names. They're going to still see us in a certain type of way. Law enforcement experts found that more police doesn't necessarily even result in less crime. And actual outcomes can be more dependent on the strategies that law enforcement officers deploy. In this section, how you can support, I'm going to talk about other strategies we can use and invest our community dollars in, rather than into a Brooklyn system that ultimately hurts all of us. So this is a short segment about AAPI activism, but I just want to call out that unlike what other people might think, we have been loud in spaces to fight for our rights throughout history. Much of the Asian American movement in our past has actually been influenced by early examples of self-determination and rejection of assimilation that came from the Black Power movement. So many of the freedoms that we see today and we have today, including voting rights protection, housing discrimination, small business protection, interracial marriages, haven't fought and won because of the civil rights movement. And so you might think, how might the words Asian American come into play? The term Asian American was coined in 1968 by Emma G. and Yuji Ichioka, two UC Berkeley grad students who saw an opportunity from the momentum gained by the Black Power Movement and the American Indian Movement. They named their group the Asian American Political Alliance, AAPA, to bring and rally folks from multiple backgrounds together. So to recruit members, they search for students with Asian last names on the directories of various campus political groups. World War II, the Vietnam War, and the Korean War served as catalyst for Asian American organization. While the mainstream anti-war movement was saying, bring our boys home, we were saying, stop killing your Asian brothers and sisters. The killing of Vincent Chin was also another catalyst for us to mobilize on a united front, regardless of our background. 
Notable figures in history include folks such as Wang Chenfu, who was a journalist, lecturer, and activist, and was an outspoken critic of anti-Chinese sentiment stereotypes in America. Yuri Kochiyama, uh, which Rosa has noted is one of her personal idols, a Japanese-American activist who advocated for reparations for internment camp survivors and fought in the civil rights movement. Philip Veracruz, a Filipino leader in the Asian-American movement and labor movement. Grace Lee Boggs, a Chinese-American activist, author, and philosopher, and civil rights leader who joined the Workers' Party and dedicated herself to cross-cultural activism, who joined the Detroit Black Power Movement, among many others. So while we continue this activism today, I just want to respect and honor those who came before us. First, I want to say that I stand in solidarity with the AAPI community and send my condolences to the families of the victims. As mentioned by Emily, I do not want to take up space, but I do want to address my fellow non-AAPI POC. I have heard and re- read way too many comments that go along the lines of, why should we stand be- besides the AAPI community when they're racist against us? The AAPI community is not a monolith. Just like we say our communities are not monoliths as well. Just like we want to not be judged by one member of our community, we need to not do so to other communities. We know how the white power structure has used our communities to scapegoat issues, such as the war on drugs, which is mostly a disguise to funnel more people into the prison industrial complex. As Simoron Tenney said, the white power structure us to fight against each other. The only way to overcome this is to work together. And as Angela Davis said, in a racist society, it is not enough to be non-racist. We must be anti-racist. The line has been made and you have to decide which group to be part of. I choose to be anti-racist and that means standing next to my AAPI friends and family. We must continue to fight and take action, as we will discuss shortly. Our fight is the same. We must build bridges between our communities. I saw BLM, Black Lives Matter, and NAACP statements on the terrorist attack in Atlanta. This is how we fight back. We work together, we take care of each other, and we hold those who harm us accountable. So now we're here. As a community, we're still figuring out ways to join multiple opinions and ideas from across multiple Asian communities on how to fight against anti-Asian hate. So here are some ways you can help support, either individually or on a state and local level. And just to note, there will be notes in our resources section of our podcast notes uh, that can link you to these resources that we're going to talk about today. So number one, report hate crime incidents. If you have experienced or were a bystander of anti-Asian bias, discrimination, or hate, report them. In our notes, you can find three resources on how to report a hate crime. Number one, uh, the National Asian Pacific American Bar Association's website has resources on how to report hate crimes to law enforcement. They also launched a pro bono hate crimes task force to offer legal resources to victims. You can also report these incidents on Stop AAPI Hate's website or 
Asian Americans Advancing Justice Stand Against Hatred page. Number two, donate if you can. So if you're able and willing to support our efforts with your dollars, there are many organizations working directly with the public on a daily basis. Make sure you're researching to these organizations you're considering donating to to make sure your money is actually being directly allocated to the work. We have some recommended organizations you can look into in our podcast notes um, with some specific to New York City. And I'm also including a donation page that can directly support the family members of those that were affected by the Atlanta shootings. Number three, share safety tips with friends and family. Stop API Hate has multiple versions of these tips translated into different languages. So for those in New York, I'll also link to an anti-harassment and safety toolkit to address anti-Asian bias, discrimination, and hate. Number four, engage your local community. Change always starts from a local level and works its way up. If you have the time and energy, consider engaging with your local community. So here are some recommendations from uh, the Stop AAPI Hate website. Ask your elected officials what they're doing to increase resources for survivors and their families and for intervention and prevention-based programs such as anti-racism education in schools and in communities. Demand ordinance or resolutions to condemn hate. Endorse strong civil rights laws at the local and state levels. What are these issues that exist within your community that need to be addressed? Advocate for expanded civil rights protections that would safeguard Asian Americans and other people from harassment, particularly in private businesses. And last but not least, work with your workplace, your school, your faith-based institution, union, or community organization to issue a statement denouncing anti-Asian racism and to encourage everyone to work towards racial justice. Number five, let's talk about the options outside of policing. As I mentioned, we do not think policing is the answer to our problems. While people believe it will help safeguard our neighborhoods and prevent crime, this is only going to be a short-term solution. We should instead fund our limited city resources into community-based programs who will help build relationships with business owners and residents, increase traffic to the area, and beautify the neighborhood. So in Oakland, the Asian Health Sciences Group and the Asian Prisoner Support Committee established an ambassador's program in 2017, which included formerly incarcerated people who go to Chinatown regularly and engage with the merchants and the residents while cleaning up trash and graffiti. The program is intended to help boost traffic in these areas, as well as help build this sense of community. In San Fran, a similar city-run program dedicated to promoting public safety in different neighborhoods has now been around for several years. Ambassadors are also trained in de-escalation and aiding community members who may also need help with their daily task. Activists have also pushed for shifting resources to other programs, including hiring more community ambassadors who are trained in violence de-escalation. They're calling for more investments in healthcare programs, in housing access, and just overall more neighborhood resources, including parks and open spaces. Similar violence interruption programs um, that involved these safety professionals have shown strong results in European countries like the UK and Belgium. So instead of divesting police into a community, which only harms and creates long-term effects, it's important to think of other creative ways to support. And number six, last but not least, have a conversation. Talk to your friends, talk to your family, talk about the anti-Black and anti-Asian biases you might have. 
Think about how you generalize and work to look within yourself as to why you might be thinking the way you do. During this time, we need the support of our communities and our allies more than ever. We need to focus on unity rather than division. So to end this, um, I just want to really give a personal story that happened yesterday. I went to Five Guys the other day with my dad and we were picking up our burgers. One of the delivery staff there walked by us, approached us and said, God bless you and your community. Stay safe. I was honestly so shocked by this act. A stranger who saw struggles and wanted to share a statement of solidarity. Honestly, that made my day. I have hope.